Amen. If you're in junior high, grades 6, 7, or 8, you can head to the youth room. I do not know about you, but nothing says Advent to me like watching a bunch of perfectly behaved children reading that classic Christmas story of Noah and the flood. All right, so uh, I had a plan today. My plan was to tell you my thoughts about hope, find three scriptures to back it up, maybe two anecdotes, possibly a metaphor, and then call it a day. And if you've been to church before for a while, or even if you're new, you may have noticed that pattern before, bold thesis, three scriptures, two anecdotes, and a metaphor. And to be fair, every pastor has their own variation on the theme, right? You know that Cyril is going to define at least two Greek words. And Mike, like you could always count on Mike to spoil the ending to at least one movie you hadn't seen yet. And personally, I like when Brent preaches because there's always that moment two-thirds of the way through the sermon when he starts furiously scanning his notes until he realizes the thing he wants to say the most isn't in his notes. So he abandons them and he stands in front of the music stand and he spends the last five minutes speaking in the moment from the heart. Now, this is only my second time around, so you have not observed my pattern yet, but I can tell you it is definitely there. So my plan was thesis, three scriptures, two anecdotes, one metaphor, because to be honest, it worked pretty well last time. But I realized I had a bunch more weeks to prepare for today. So instead of coming up with a thesis and looking for evidence, instead, I decided to spend six weeks making a note of every single time I heard the word hope on TV, in movies, in conversation with people, in church, in scripture. And I figured if I made a list of every single time at the end of six weeks, there'd be a sermon in there somewhere if I just had to find it. And I did. So here we go. The world uses the word hope in one of two ways. The first way is what I like to call birthday card hope. When Diana and I were celebrating our party, we got a lot of cards that said, hope you have. And in this context, hope is just like a want, it's a wish, it's, it means let it be so, right? Hope you have a great day just means may you have a great day. It's like a simple swap. The second way the world uses the word hope is different. And I want you to see it for yourself. So we're going to watch a bunch of clips of every time I saw the word hope on TV. And as you watch, I want you to pay attention to what the characters mean when they say the word hope. Joe is the only line of defense if the Klingons attack. Not if. When. I have to hope that whatever happens here can serve as a bridge between our civilization. 
Of all the kings of Greece, I respect you the most. In this war, you're a servant. Sometimes you have to serve in order to lead. I hope you understand that one day. Buddy is killing me. Ernie got Lum Lum and Shoot Shoot pulling doubles. I was quick thinking yesterday with that special talents thing. I feel bad for the guy. Just hope he doesn't get wise. So, Thanksgiving in New York. Oh, it's gonna be great, the Big Apple. Hope your mom likes me. Toby. Oh, I, I hope you don't mind. I made myself at home. Lollipop? We've done it, Trinity. We found him. I hope you're right. And if I die, which I hope I never do, I hope I live forever, but if I die... It doesn't have to be cruel, Arch. Just enough to make Jug believe it. We can walk it back later. You mean you hope we can? However much we stumble, it is a teacher's burden always to hope that with learning, a boy's character might be changed. Hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind that I put down in words uh, Hello? Who dares enter my room? I'm sorry! I, I hope I'm not interrupting, but I'm told you're the one to talk to about an... ogre problem? We need cover! Quick! We're about to get some! All right, so this is what struck me. In every single one of those clips, the word hope is used when a character assumes something is not going to happen. But fingers crossed, maybe it will. The Star Wars example, right? She says, help is on the way, at least I hope it is. Really, she's saying, I assume help is not on the way, but fingers crossed, maybe it is. And if you're thinking, did he just use Star Wars and Star Trek in the same sermon? <laughs> Again? Like, is that the thing he's going to do every time? I can tell you, it is not the thing. But there will come a day when you wish it was. <laughs> to summarize, hope, hope is something we do. Right? It's an action. Uh, it, it's a verb. And hope assumes no. Maybe yes, right? maybe, but no. And in these movies, I realize that hope is actually the word that people use when there is no hope. They're just not ready to admit it to themselves yet. Hope comes off sounding a bit naive, a bit desperate. But this is where things get complicated, because when I look at the examples I saw in worship and the Bible, the definition doesn't hold up. So... Joy begin to rise, and hope begin to light the dark. Hope is springing up from this old ground. Out of chaos, life is being found in you. You are my shelter. I put my hope in your word. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope 
that you have. Hope is an anchor for the soul. And if we look at them again, is the song saying, we assume God isn't going to bring order and life out of chaos, but fingers crossed, maybe, maybe he will. Is the psalmist saying, I assume you will not protect me, but fingers crossed, maybe you will? Is Peter suggesting that we always be ready to explain why we assume eternal life isn't real, but fingers crossed, maybe it is? Or here, is Paul saying that he assumes Jesus didn't conquer sin and death, but fingers crossed, maybe he did? Of course not. It's obvious that the definition we saw before doesn't work here. Now, this is not going to become one of those grammar lessons where I criticize you for using words incorrectly. Right? I'm not going to argue that the sign should be saying 10 items or fewer, or that every time you say the words, I might, you should really be saying, I may. Because, as my son Elliot reminds me almost every day, there is a time and there is a place for a grammar lesson. And this, this is not it. And it's not even that we're using the words incorrectly. Sometimes words just have two different meanings. And it's rare. But on occasion, one word can actually have two opposite, two contradictory meanings. If you think of the word tension, in a relationship, tension pulls people apart. It's destructive, right? But the tension in this bridge isn't ripping it apart, it's holding it all together in perfect balance. The word peruse, for example, can mean to skim quickly or to read carefully at length. My favorite is the word fulsome, because fulsome can mean either weak and insincere or complete and thorough. So if someone sends you an email asking you to peruse some documents so you can give a fulsome report tomorrow, like, do you have to skim them in like brief summary, or you have to read them at length and provide some analysis? Words, words are fun. And I would suggest to you that hope is another one of these contronyms. Not only does it have two different meanings, it has two contradictory ones. In the Bible, hope does not mean I assume not. Hope is a confidence. In the Bible, it is a belief, it's a trust, a certainty. In the Bible, hope is an expectation, right? And it's, it's an assumption that yes. So around us, hope is something we do, it's a verb. In the Bible, hope is something we have, it's something we can hold. And around us, hope assumes not, but in the Bible, hope assumes yes, absolutely yes. 
Now, if you're hearing the words, a confidence, a faith, a trust, a certainty, an expectation, you might object and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Aren't you defining faith? Isn't faith, confidence, trust, and expectation? And yes, of course it is. But have you ever noticed how often faith and hope show up in the exact same verse? These two words are definitely tied together. I imagine that either faith and hope are two sides of the exact same coin, or that hope is actually a specific type of faith. To explain it another way, faith is the thing we have now because what God has done in the past. And it impacts our beliefs, our actions, our reactions. If you think of Hebrews 11, you'll remember that by faith, Abraham, Moses, David, they all did things. And so too, you should do things through faith. Hope is different. Hope is the faith we have, the expectation we have, the certainty we have for what God is going to do in the future. Faith is about our actions now. Hope is faith that God is going to keep his promises. And I'm going to say that again because it's the sentence that excites me about this whole morning. Hope is faith that God will keep his promises. Now, if your life is already full of hope, you might be nodding and thinking, well, yes, that's, I mean, I've never thought about it that far, but that's, that's exactly what I have, huh? But if you don't have hope already, the observation that hope is a type of faith is actually pretty defeating because it doesn't help you get it. And I'm supposed to be up here preaching the good news. So the good news is this. The Bible tells us that by remembering what God has done, hope is created. When the Hebrews came to the promised land, they were scared that they would be defeated, scared that God wouldn't keep his promise. Moses told them to remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs, and the wonders. And remembering what God did gave them a confidence for what God would do next. So it should be no surprise that when they forgot God in the desert, they lost their hope that he would keep his promises, and they started trying to take care of themselves. Right? They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader. So if you want to have hope in the present, you need to remember what God has done in the past. If you want certainty that God will keep his promises, you just need to remember the promises that God's already kept. You'll actually recognize the sentiment in this song, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Now, I should point out, I have not always understood hope as a certainty and an expectation. It's actually been a fairly recent development. The first time I heard this idea that hope was certainty, I was at a funeral a few years ago. 
And during the message, the minister said that when you live in the hope and the expectation of the resurrection, it doesn't take away your sadness, but it changes its flavor. And that struck me, because at that point in my life, I hadn't experienced loss and this sentiment that when you live in hope, it changes sadness. That was something I knew to be reasonable, right? It was something that I hoped, fingers crossed, was true, but it wasn't something I felt firsthand until my father died suddenly two years ago while serving on a mission trip with my mom in Ethiopia. He died of leukemia before learning that he had it. And the weeks that followed were a whirlwind of grief, of paperwork, of red tape, and of questions. And one night, after everyone was back in the country, my sister, my mom, and I were sitting around an office table at my parents' house. Everyone else had gone home, and we were there officially to write an obituary. But in reality, we were reminiscing, and we were joking, right? We were laughing, and we were crying. We spent a lot of time arguing about which pictures to include in the memorial slideshow and which ones we shouldn't. And our biggest argument was about this one. Perhaps some context. My parents were traveling with another couple in Alaska, and one night, my dad handed the camera to my mom and said, you have to take a picture of this, because he wanted to send this picture back to the men in his Bible study in Hamilton, because the week before, they had just finished reading Matthew chapter 5. Right? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. <laughs> and for the record, I love the fact that my dad had a group of Christian friends he was so close with that he could use scripture as a punchline for their humor. Right? Like that, that's my prayer every time I get an email from Exhort that this is the type of community they, we can have too. My mother and I were adamant that this picture be put in the slideshow. Right? We thought it was hilarious. We thought he, it summed him up perfectly. My sister, Leanne, was aghast. Are you kidding me, she said? No, forget it. Over my dead body, are you ever going to show that picture in church? <laughs> and I reached across the table and took her hand. And with all the discernment and compassion that only an older brother can have, I said, no, Leanne, not over your dead body, over his smile, jab in the arm, eye roll, chuckle, and then tears. At one point, hours after we started, I remember taking a deep breath and saying, you know, it's the darndest thing, but in the two weeks since dad's died, not once have I asked God why. And Leanne 
put her hand to her mouth as she shook her head and whispered, neither have I. And then we both looked at my mother, a bit nervous about her reaction, because it, what we were saying felt irreverent somehow. But she smiled at us through pursed lips as she nodded and said, I haven't asked it either. In fact, I remember thinking the exact same thing when I was in, still in Ethiopia. And then the three of us began another round of tears. We were sad. I mean, of course we were sad. Because when you live in the hope and the expectation of the resurrection, it doesn't take away your sadness, but it changes its flavor. So there was no despair. Right? There was no anger. There was no blame. There was no sense of futility. There was just peace. In that moment, it was as if we were being blessed with comfort because we'd allowed ourselves to mourn. And I shouldn't have been surprised because that's exactly what Jesus promises will happen. And I'm, when I remember that night, it gives me the confidence, the expectation, the hope that God will keep his promise me and comfort me through my next loss and that he'll keep the rest of his promises too. Like his promise to hear his people when they cry out to him. And when I read the Old Testament, I realize God doesn't just hear his people, he acts. When the Hebrews were in Egypt and they cried out to God, he rescued them, right? During the time of the judges, they cried out over and over and over again. And every single time, God was there. I, I've only cried out to God twice in my entire life. And this actually connects to a question Cyril asked us a few years ago. Do you remember he asked us, have you ever felt like you were in prison? I immediately thought back to my first teaching job at King's Christian Collegiate the year after it opened. Now, the story of how I landed at King's is a long one, so I'll save it for another day. All you need to understand is that the circumstances around me getting there made it clear God had a hand in it. And it was my first job, and it was amazing for eight weeks until mid-November. I remember I was at this fundraising dinner in a, in a room of a few hundred people, and as I looked around the room, I heard this voice in my head saying, this school doesn't need you. These kids... These kids are going to be fine without you. There's an entire room of people here committed to seeing they succeed you. You need to go somewhere where you're needed. And all of a sudden, eight weeks into a job, I was confused. I remember praying, God, like, why did you bring me here if I'm not supposed to be here? And the confusion of purpose would have been one thing, but that first year at King's was a hard year. Usually, first-year teachers like to go into their classroom, close the door, and pray. No one learns their name or notices them. Right? The school wasn't built yet, so my classes were in a room very much like this one. My students divided from the other students by a thin line of really short cubicle dividers, so that whenever I put work up on the screen, the wall, we didn't have screens, we had a wall, 
The kids in the math class beside me could see everything I was saying, as could the English kids on the other side of the divider, as could the principal who was sitting at a table in the back of the room. Every single word I said, every single lesson on display for everybody. And every other teacher in the school was teaching one subject, but I was the last one hired. And so I was teaching one history, one civics, one careers, one phys ed, one Bible. And because we didn't have a school yet, I was teaching history without a library, careers without a guidance department. I was teaching phys ed without a gymnasium. I had to teach Bible without Bibles at a Christian school because the ones we wanted were on back order from Zondervan. And every day, I remember looking at my reflection in the door as I walked into the school, straightening my tie and saying, one more day, you can do this, one more day. And every day as I drove home, I kept asking God, why am I here if I'm not supposed to be here? And as the year went on, my prayers became louder and more desperate. That's the advantage of praying in your car. No one can hear you. And I remember one day getting so frustrated that I just started punching the steering wheel over and over again as hard as I could, just screaming because I was tired of forming the words with my mouth. And God never answered my prayer. And at the end of the year, Kings asked me to stay on, but I was done. I, mean, I had taught some of those kids three different courses. I had nothing left. And if you've been following closely, you realize my last three points were, God always hears his people when they cry out to him. I cried out to God. God did nothing. So it would appear that I've told the wrong story except I've also been saying that we need to remember. So here's what else I remember about those days. All through teacher's college, I worried a lot about what I was supposed to do with my life. I worried that I wasn't attuned to God's will for me. On the one hand, I assumed that I would teach in a Christian school because I had gone to a Christian school. Now I was a teacher and a Christian. Like, Becoming a Christian teacher was just like an obvious sequence of events. On the other hand, I really wanted to teach Latin. And I felt guilty that my dream, right, the thing that caused my imagination to fire, the thing that made me feel most alive was incompatible with where God expected me to teach. Now, to be fair, I was pretty young and a bit stupid. And I hadn't yet figured out that God's will for our lives is rarely about which path we should walk. Instead, it's about how we walk the path. And looking back, I am so thankful that I got to spend a year at King's. It may be the best thing that happened in my career because it allowed me to realize I was not a Christian school teacher. Teaching at King's let me move on to the public board with a clear conscience and a sense of confidence, and I've been there ever since. Imagine I started teaching in public school right out of teacher's college. Imagine if I had spent all this time wondering if I'd made the right choice.
if I'd spent all these years feeling guilty for being selfish and choosing my passion over some imagined responsibility to God. Can you imagine if this guy was still worried that guy had made the wrong choice? When I think back to that prayer, why am I here if I'm not supposed to be here, I realize that God was answering it with my own words every single time I formed the question, why am I here if I'm not supposed to be here? Oh, I'm here because I'm not supposed to be here. I was frustrated God didn't hear me and that he didn't answer. It never occurred to me for a second that sometimes God hears us and he answers our prayers before we even compose them. It's as if, while I was consumed with worry, he was watching out for me the entire time. But God hasn't only kept his promises to me. Christmas is a reminder that God kept his promise to all of us. An Advent reading about Noah and the flood might seem like, sorry, no, may, may seem like an odd choice. But in reality, nothing could be more appropriate on the Sunday of hope where we remember God fulfilling his promises than a story about the very first promise God made to us. In Genesis, God washes away the sin of the world with a flood, but soon realizes this is not a permanent solution, right? Humanity is sinful, and the cycle of sin and washing away could easily go on forever. So God does something incredible. He limits his options. He promises he will never wash away sin with a flood again. And in doing so, God commits himself to devising a new way to wash the sin of the world. Jesus. Christmas is the fulfillment of God's first promise. And remembering that brings me hope. So what would Christmas look like in a world that no longer remembers what God has done? Hope would disappear. All you would have left is peace, joy, and love. Have you been to the mall lately? Or on Etsy? I saw all these decorations this week. Peace, joy, love, peace, joy, love. And on the one hand, I love them because they seem so positive. But on the other hand, they break my heart because peace, joy, and love are all things we think we can do on our own. Right? Give me a warm fireplace and a cozy blanket and I can manufacture feelings of peace, joy, and love. But hope, hope requires you to answer the question, in what? In whom? Hope is the thing that defines the difference between Christmas in the church and Christmas around us. And this week, the news was abuzz because the president, south of the border, brought back Merry Christmas. 
And truthfully, I don't think it was Christmas that disappeared from society. I think it was hope that disappeared from Christmas. In lighting up a huge tree with an I told you so grin isn't going to do anything to change that. So my challenge to you is to hope this year and next. And if you've been, if you've been paying attention, in order to have hope for what will God will do in the future, you must remember what God has done in the past. And if you look around you on the seats, you'll notice a card that looks like this. Right? On one side, there's an image of hope, and on the other side, there's a, a challenge, a call to remember what God has done. And I don't know what you're going to do with your card. Maybe you will take it home and put it on the fridge. Maybe it'll end up in your purse or between the seats in your car. But I am going to start a new tradition with mine, and I invite you to join me. So I'm going to spend the rest of this week and the rest of this month remembering what God has done. And I'm going to jot them down, these things I don't want to forget. And in January, when we pack away the Christmas decorations, I'm going to put this card in the bottom of the cardboard box labeled Christmas decorations that lives in my crawl space. So that next year, when we pull it out to decorate our tree, I'll find it again. And before I string the lights, I'll remember what God has done. And then I can add a new year's worth of things I've seen God do before I put it away to be forgotten for another year, only to be taken out again. And I'll do that again and again, year after year. Each year, notes from Christmas past bringing hope to Christmas future. And I, I imagine that years from now, I'll actually need to staple some extra pages to it. And inevitably, one year after I'm gone, my children will be the ones to find it as they're cleaning up my stuff. By then, it will have grown into an essay, right? My answer to the question my reason for the hope that I have, and the reason I expect their sadness to have a different flavor. A final observation as we come into communion. Jesus. Jesus understood the importance of tradition and reflection. When he shared bread and wine with his disciples, he commanded them to do this in remembrance of me. Now, over the years, a lot of you have noticed me jotting down notes in a little journal in church. I had a lot of questions, like, what are you writing? And 11 years ago, I started writing during church to keep myself awake. And then I continued writing because I realized that often when I left on Sunday, it all made perfect sense. But somehow by Wednesday, I'd forgotten how it all went together and it all seemed confusing. And it was a way for me to remember. 
right? I write down reflections, sometimes I write down prayers, something I hear on the radio that I think connects to something I read in the Bible. And about 10 years ago, I remember hearing a sermon that observed that when we take communion, it's bread, but it's more than bread, right? It's juice, but it's more than juice. Communion is a symbol, like communion is a metaphor, and I was challenged to articulate what the metaphor meant for me today. So I wrote it down. And since then, I've taken communion 230 times, and I've got a record of every single one. And reading through them is enlightening. Apparently, in May of last year, when I took communion, it represented a need for it all to be true. A week later, when I took communion, it represented a willingness to embrace the mystery. Talk about a faith that's being lived in tension. And do you know what I discovered as I was preparing for today? The first time I defined the metaphor, 10 years ago, I wrote that communion is fleeing back to Jesus and hoping he is still there. Wow. Those are not the, man, the words of a man whose hope is confident. I'm using hope as a verb. What I really wrote was running back to Jesus, assuming he's not there. But fingers crossed, maybe, just maybe, he still is. And of course he was, because he promised he would be. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for comforting us. Thank you for hearing when we cry out and holding us when we are consumed with worry. Thank you for meeting us at this table as we take communion in remembrance of you. Amen.